Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Thanks for tuning in today to the Living Church Podcast. I'm Amber Noel, your host. This week, the publishing house Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux released the newest novel from Marilyn Robinson, Jack. Marilyn Robinson's contributions to American letters and intellectual life are many, but she is perhaps best well-known for her 2004 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Gilead, and for the series of novels the book inspired, continuing the family history of the small-town Iowa minister, the Reverend John Ames. And Jack is the fourth in that series. Who is Jack? Jack Boughton is this philosophical and mercurial man who pervades all the other books. He is a son figure to John Ames. He's also a prodigal son figure and a character marked in the other three books of the series far more by his absence than his presence. Well, we finally get to meet him in this novel. We also finally get to meet his wife, Della, and to witness for ourselves some of the key moments in their courtship and marriage. Please pick up a copy of the book, give it a read, and check out our show notes for a downloadable group study guide of Jack that's perfect for small groups or book clubs. Now, without further ado, today we are pleased to present part one of a special two-part interview between former Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams and Marilyn Robinson herself. We have had Bishop Rowan on our show before. You may have heard him talking about his new book on St. Benedict. And as it turns out, he is a great fan of Marilyn Robinson's work. And so he was eager to read Jack and to have a chat with her about it. What was my role in all this? I got to sit in on the call with a mug of hot tea and be a fly on the wall for this conversation. You know, folks, sometimes life is just hard. We hope you enjoy part one of their fascinating conversation as much as I did.
Marilyn, as I said, it's lovely to hear you again. I hope you're well. Very well. I hope you are also. Great privilege to be able to talk about, about the new book. And um, if it's okay, I'll, I'll plunge straight in. I've, I've got a few general areas that I'd, I'd love to explore a bit. And I'll begin with the most boringly obvious question, which I guess everybody will be asking, which is, uh, when you wrote Gilead, did you envisage four books or did that emerge as you as you got to know the characters, as you listened to them? It, it was it was slow emerging. You know, I, I didn't think I would write another book related to Gilead when I wrote Gilead. Hmm. So it was a matter of watching what was emerging with with the characters and and what addressing the, the unfinished business of how to understand them, how to see them three dimensionally. Yes, I I learned actually over time that I had three dimensional ideas of these people uh, that were sufficiently robust for me to to give them their own novels. Um, they stayed in my mind, and they were very strongly characterized in my mind. And so, uh, you know, why why abandon them really? Because mm-hmm. it, it does seem to me there is something about the very nature of of imaginative writing, which if it's really doing its work, leaves you with unfinished business. I, I know that you've been teaching Shakespeare this last year, and I often think about the, the way in which Shakespeare can't let go of certain themes like fathers and daughters. And it's as if when he's done one extraordinary evocation of that, he says, you know, I haven't even started. And then another another play comes along. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> I always enjoy comparisons to Shakespeare. I I don't know if I deserve them, but <laughs> but it is true that uh, you know you live, you know, your mind is in the book for a very long time, uh, for a couple of years or more, um, and you realize that you have, I think, populated it more richly than you know you sort of like explaining a dream or something like that, you know, where there is so much more of setting and intensity and so on than, than you can somehow or other uh, convey, at least in one novel. Yes. The, the other thing which I suppose has been very much in my mind reading Jack is the subtext about, about race, which is so, so significant in the first two particularly, is really foregrounded in this, in this fourth novel. And as things have turned out, it, it could hardly be more timely as a reflection. It's, it's as if in this, in this novel, the sense of the race issue of racism itself as a kind of foundational sin in American society, that's allowed to, to come up in a very articulate way and, and a very, you know, very in-your-face way sometimes. I'm thinking of that very poignant episode late in the book when Jack is traveling and he goes to the boarding house with this kindly old woman. And when he says that uh, his wife will be joining him, that she's a colored lady, um, she she sort of explodes. And I think, just looking at the text here, that isn't possible. It's against the law. Just when you think you know somebody. So just like that, it had ended. He knew there was no appeal to be made. And and we've been introduced to this lady in the boarding house as you know, warm, kind person, eager to welcome this um, this man who's helped her family. And suddenly, you're up against this um, 
extraordinary brick wall. And that that's something to do with the way in which in the whole of the book, the, the tensions between individual kindness and individual goodness and a sort of collective brutality come through. And I, I read that as a very theological take on it, something very much to do with the fact that you know, racism is not simply a problem of individuals with faulty perceptions. And that's that's something to do itself with the nature of, of sin, I guess. It, it did strike me that this certainly brought that very much to the surface, the contemporaneity of it. That's something that has fascinated me since, you know, <laughs> at intervals, it becomes a, an extremely um, important subject. I didn't really anticipate it, the importance that it would have now, but whether it's quiet or whether it's, you know, active as an issue, it, it's always an issue. And uh, people, I think that, you know, one of the things that literature can do is explore the anomalies of individual and social behavior. The fact that people experience themselves as, as kind and fair and all that sort of thing uh, during mm, centuries, while this one glaring exception was was so conspicuously present. Yes, because that's something that a lot of um, commentators noted, particularly, I think, in, in the second of the sequence, that the, the unthinking assumption that the, you know, the early days of civil rights protest and violence and so forth, that, that would pass of that as just a, a localized and um, almost contingent phenomenon. That's, that's brought out very, very poignantly in that second book, where Jack, of course, knows more than his father ever will about that subject and knows that his father is not a bad man and that all those others who are saying these things are not bad individuals. It's, it's a great problem in a society which, as is often said, is both very permissive and very judgmental at the moment, to try and disentangle the, the systemic underlying question, the, what I call the foundational sin question, from individuals being, being bad or being deliberately destructive. It's, it's, it's very hard, I think, in, I suppose, also in a, an individualistic society where we think in terms of, of blame and so when people push away questionings about race, it's because often they don't want to be put at an individual disadvantage. But it seems that that's quite a, you know, quite a substantial social fact at the moment, there is a contradiction in our collective minds. Yes, I, I think sometimes, I think very often actually, that uh, we don't think about the issue terribly well, I'm afraid. When there's all this talk about 1619, you know, and what that means, it means many things. But one thing it means is that there was not one minute in meaningful American history when we were not a country of two races. And um, the history of it, I mean, granting all the denial and suppression and all the rest of it, you simply can't imagine American culture without, um, uh, without granting the huge importance of African-American culture, the impact on language, religion, music, virtually everything that you would call distinctively American. And um, there's, a, I mean, there's a, a way in which to speak of the African-American population in this country as if they, as if the fact of the crime against them is the only thing that matters about them. I think that that's 
the huge problem that they, uh, you know, it's it's an irony that that people who have had such a profound impact, uh, to whom we go for the most important political language, that we use, you know, in any in any serious argument about the nature of the country and so on, the fact that that is primarily how they're viewed is clearly a very misleading thing, you know. I mean, part of the exclusion of African-American acknowledgement or whatever is the fact that their very great importance and their very great value as salient, essential, original members of the culture somehow uh, lost even among people who consider themselves sympathetic and informed. Yeah, and one one point that you, you raised there or implied there that these are people from whom we we borrow significant moral language for our our self understanding, well, for certainly for American self understanding, as if there is an an agency and an indebtedness that people are very very reluctant to face. But I also found very moving in the book the way in which Della's father sets out his his position. Not quite, not quite fully separatist, but in a sense a, a kind of iron resolve not to accept a walk-on part in somebody else's drama, but to to write the script, even if other people don't recognise it. And that's that's tragic in a very strong sense, as I as I read it. Yes, I agree. Certainly, it's a, one of the great historical ironies, of course, that the language of Jefferson is so profoundly important to the language of Martin Luther King, you know, that, the, that we are conjoined twins, the two civilizations in America, and that uh, when they speak most poignantly, most profoundly uh, about their uh, aspirations, their identity, and the rest of it, uh, it comes back to that great language and renews it that, that most of us have never abandoned and never ceased to be moved by. Yes, that idea of, of renewing the language is, is very powerful because one of the tropes, I think, in, in the language of somebody like Martin Luther King is, if you like, a, a, a prophetic, in the strictly Hebraic and Old Testament sense, a prophetic recall to the language that the ambient society uses about itself at its best. It's saying, well, this is what you say about yourself. Um, so I tell you that this is what I hear, and it's not what you say, and that—that's a real challenge for renewal, I think. Yes, and also uh, Jefferson, you know, uh, he invokes basically the idea of the soul. You know, Adam became a living soul um, because he's retelling the creation myth when he talks about being endowed by our Creator and so on. Um, and this is not something that 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 is simply, uh, you know, adapted as a cultural claim. Um, it's a, basically a description of human nature that we are in an intimate, original relationship with God as individual people. And I think that that's an idea that uh, that African American culture has never seen as being narrow in its powers of description, you know, that it, it's a, a, an essential claim 
that associates them very, very deeply with, uh, you know, with the original coin made for human beings in, you know, in early America. Absolutely. And, and the significance of the language of, of soul in the vocabulary of African-American culture, that, that tells its own story, I think, though, doesn't it? It's certainly very important, very essential. And that, I mean, that takes me on to um, an area I, w- I wanted to discuss a bit more, which is um, the way in which you use that language of soul so evocatively at various points in this book. And I think one of the passages that I most um, immediately loved and warmed to was when Taylor says to Jack, once in a lifetime, maybe you look at a stranger and you see a soul, a glorious presence out of place in the world. And if you love God, every choice is made for you. There is no turning away. You've seen the mystery. You've seen what life is about, what it's for. And a soul has no earthly qualities, no history among the things of this world, no guilt or injury or failure, no more than a flame would have. There is nothing to be said about it except that it is a holy human soul, and it is a miracle when you recognize it. And that, that is, if I may say so, that, that is an absolutely wonderful resonant passage and goes straight to the heart of, of the underlying, underlying question. But um, I wonder if I can press you a bit to say a bit more about how that language of the soul as, as a sort of alien presence without history or guilt. Some would say, well, surely souls are historical. They're formed by... Um, by what they've endured, they're formed by time and change. And um, is is that still part of the picture when you talk about this, uh, this radiant timelessness of the soul and the way you do that? Well, you know, I th- I suppose I I think of the soul as being, uh, the, you know, the human self in the presence of God, the human self under God's eye. Um, we don't we don't know how to interpret ourselves really because for one thing we don't know the the feelings and motives and so on that you know that form human history human behavior um, but we know as a matter of faith or as a matter of cultural assumption perhaps that um, there is there is something there is an essence in a human being that is valuable and from God's point of view, lovable, uh, despite all the accidents of, of worldly existence, you know? It's a singular, impenetrable relationship of the self with God based on certainly the, the primary love of God toward the creature, you know? So, I mean, in that sense, because we have a much more than a than an earthly history, a much more than an earthly existence. There has to be that in us that is not touched by the world. I, yes, I entirely see that. I, sometimes I've, I've suggested that if we want to understand what, what we mean by a spiritual perspective on, on ourselves or the world, we, we have to think of ourselves and whatever else we encounter as simply related to God before related to us. And there's, therefore, I dimension always inaccessible to us, which exists in that kind of primordial connection with the creative love of God. And to see another person, or even to see any material thing in the world, 
in that light has turned towards God before it's turned towards us. That's, in a sense, that's the essence of the spiritual. That's that's what saves us from a completely sort of buccaneering, dominating, a possessive, cutting a swathe through the world, which sadly is what we uh, what we live with such a lot of the time. But it's it's an amazing passage. Today's episode is brought to you by The Chapter at Neshota House. The Chapter at Neshota House develops materials and ideas to provide theological dialogue and continuing education that reflects the many voices within the Anglican Communion. They invite you to take a free class, read articles, listen to podcasts, engage with friends, and have access to a special collection of rare prayer books. You can join the chapter for free today. Visit neshotachapter.com to find resources for daily purpose and spiritual truth. That's N-A-S-H-O-T-A-H chapter.com. It's it's an amazing passage, I think, and it it also connects a bit in my mind with an, another passage which struck me very deeply, rather earlier in in the book, um, which is really about resurrection, about um, the angels opening the caskets. You remember the passage: the angels would open the caskets and lift up old Mrs. This and young Mister That, making themselves to their great joy much less marvelous and interesting than the recently disinterred. Wings are fine, and a kind of luminosity would be very nice, but to hear a familiar laugh would be an almost unbearable joy, a human joy exceeding anything seraphim could feel, since angels cannot know death. So that much was true, granting his terms. In such a blast and glare of astonishment, what offences could be remembered? And I, I read that as, as another way into the same sense of mystery, and there, of course, connected very much with the strange way in which the the uniqueness of this mystery, the heart of every person, is in fact bound up with with physical memory, the, the remembered laugh, which is highly specific, highly material, and yet somehow not at the mercy of change and chance. And that that insight that angels don't know death, and therefore somehow the, the resurrected human is a more astonishing thing than the angels. That it's a very powerful theme. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I do think of people as being uh, beautifully individuated. That there, you know, the the billions of us that there are, all of us distinct from one another, and you know, unpredictable and indescribable ways. I, I think that that's a very great part of God's pleasure in creation. You know. I I don't see it as being something that would perish with the flesh. I see it as as a as an one of the the great ornaments of the children of Adam. Yes, I, I must say I thought that that passage. If if I wanted to start a theological seminar on resurrection, I might very well start with that bit. <laughs> but let me um, move from there to to that question which I think is raised by the, by the language there. In some ways, this is also a novel, isn't it, about the difficulty and the elusiveness and the imperative of joy. I mean, you, you end with, again, a very resonant and very, um, some very startling meditation on happiness as something stolen, 
as if from the world of external injustice and internal despair. Nonetheless, this, this person reaches for, grabs onto a possibility of joy, which doesn't seem to connect with any deserving, with any, uh, any process. It's, it's just there and it's to be, to be held, to be, uh, to be touched, to be received. So that whereas there's a way of coming into theology via the problem of evil, um, I think you're you're hinting that there's a problem of good as well. That if there's random, unpredictable, horrible evil in the world, yeah, that that makes for a very difficult vision of the world. But it's in some ways almost equally difficult to come to terms with with the problem of good, with with the joy that causelessly and unreasonably breaks in. The knowledge of good, that half of the primal catastrophe, received too little attention. He could think of himself as a thief sneaking off with an inestimable wealth of meaning and trust. All of it offended and damaged beyond use except to remind him of the nature of the crime, or he could consider the sweet marriage that made her a conspirator with him in it, the loyalty that always restored them both, just like grace, this undeserved problem of good. Yes. Yes. It seems to me as if the moral habits of traditional Christianity have uh, acted as if basically um, our understanding of ourselves and circumstances and of others and so on um, are much more simple and binary actually than than they could possibly be and you know it seems to me as if in a circumstance where something is ambivalent to overlook what might be the element of grace in it uh, is um, is not respectful toward God in a sense. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, and we can, um, I think, assume that the unjust enjoy the rain as much as the just do, <laughs> and are meant to. I, I just think that we have a, a very harsh and excessively narrow conception of of if what morality, what what the joy of existence, and so on can amount to or should amount to. Yes, and quite quite early on, um, you have a conversation which is um, about Thanksgiving, both in the sense of um, the, the literal celebration of it. She said, you could come to my place for Thanksgiving. He laughed. What have I done to deserve that? Thanksgiving isn't something a person has to deserve. And uh, <laughs> that, that's a nice sort of ambiguity there. Thanksgiving as, a, as a, an event isn't something a person has to deserve, but Thanksgiving as, as a practice isn't something a person has to deserve. That's the whole point of it. And um, that, that's interesting because to, to rescue the notion of Thanksgiving from a notion of, I suppose, some sort of debt is, is really important, that you, you give thanks not because you are now under an obligation. You give thanks because something has been made possible gratuitously by grace. I took that as one of the, um, if you like, one of the passages that set a motif for for the whole of this this narrative. Yes, um, I I have been listening for some time to um, a station that plays um, black spiritual music all the time. You hear the lyrics are full of gratitude very often, and they they thank God for being able to pray. Thank God for being able to sing, 
or they say God for being alive, you know? And uh, there's, I don't know, with all respect to my own denomination, I hear these kinds of realizations less frequently perhaps than, than one should, you know? There are songs that thank God for difficulty, for making it hard. Uh, all of them you could dance to, I think, you know? Uh, but it's like a, another but entirely appropriate uh, vocabulary for experience, religious experience. I didn't start listening to it until after the after the book was done, but uh, I was happy to find that certain of the ideas that I deal with in that book would be highly, highly compatible with these songs that I hear. Because that, that's a a picture of our response to God and, and to God's creation, which again takes takes one right out of the the register of duty and debt. And there's there's um, one place I think where you you talk about what you know what what is um, owed to people and has to be discharged, but never amounts to real respect. And that that struck me as a, again a really poignant and searching thing that when we when we attempt to discharge a duty to someone, we never get as far as real respect because respect has about it that sense of, well, of distance, actually, the right kind of distance, what um, Simone Weil wonderfully calls the hesitation we ought to feel on the threshold of somebody else. And that that's bound up, I, th I think, with this dimension of thanksgiving as well. Well, you know... Um... I do think, I think that many varieties of unhappiness would be effectively addressed by, uh, by remembering more often than we do that respect is owed to other people without exception, without condition. I think that so many of the, the problems that we have is, are that we lack the imagination to remember what is owed to another human being then, of course, we ourselves and the people that we care about have to live with the abrasions of, of finding no res presumptive or too little presumptive respect in, in dealing with other people toward ourselves or toward the, our children or whatever, you know. I mean, it, it just seems to me as if the treasure of Christianity, above many others, is that uh, it does sort of tell us how we should live in the world and and for our benefit for our in order to feel abundance you know and it's not anything that we ever look at it seems to me at least in my experiences to, to feel abundance i think that's that's the key to it i was thinking of um, a couple of things from a rather different context which to my mind illustrate the notion of respect the late Dewey Phillips, the philosopher, who was a fellow townsman of mine from Swansea in South Wales, used to say that something very, very significant had happened in Welsh village life when people stopped coming out onto the streets to watch a funeral procession going past. As he said, there had been, when he grew up, which would be you know, 30 odd years before I was growing up, there would still be the sense that you, you would come out on the streets, you would walk a certain amount of the way with the funeral procession. And that's a mark of respect, not simply a mechanical taking a hat off, but a way of acknowledging that there was something which you could only cope with through a slightly ritualized kind of behavior, 
which didn't make a great deal of sense. I mean, what difference does it make to walk alongside a hearse? But it was an acknowledgement of um, a loss that you couldn't find words for, a dignity you couldn't find words for. And that was that was respect. And the other thing that came to my mind is very different, again, but also from um, Swansea in South Wales, and that's Dylan Thomas's wonderful preface to his collected poems, where he tells the story of a, a West Wales farmer who still put out offerings for the fairies. And somebody said, do you seriously think that you're, you know, you're making any difference by putting out these little sources of milk for the fairies? And the farmer simply said, I'd be a dumb fool if I didn't. And um, Dylan Thomas says, these poems are written for the love of man and in praise of God, and I'd be a damn fool if they weren't. <laughs> and respect with that element of sort of almost an undercurrent of exuberance in it. <laughs> I rather walk to that. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.